going to be returning to the book of Job this morning. Uh, as I said earlier on, we're not, it's not a, not a book that we're going to be studying word by word as we very often do or t- typically do in, in our Bible studies uh, for the simple reason if we did that, this, this book is so lengthy that it would take the rest of our lives to get close to being through it. Uh, so we're taking it in bigger chunks. We're going to be actually looking at two full chapters this morning, chapter 9 and verse 10. Just a reminder of what we studied last week, uh, that Bildad had responded to what Job had said in response to Eliphaz's uh, uh, basically questioning and almost, in a sense, condemning Job. Uh, Bildad has, been, has basically done the same thing. Remember, difference in personality, that Eliphaz was a little bit more diplomatic in the things that he said. Uh, Bildad, on the other hand, was just as blunt as he could be. Uh, he knew exactly what was going on here. He knew why Job was in the circumstances he was in. And his encouragement to Job over and over again was just to give up and give into it, understand that you're the one that's in the wrong, and do whatever you have to do to right that wrong, etc., etc. But what we're going to find with those two, and then we're going to find it also with Zophar, and the truth that really is of, of Job himself is at the very beginning of all this, they all believe that the only reason people ever suffer is because of wrong that they do. So if you're suffering physically or in any way, shape, or form, it has something to do with something that you've done that have brought it, and you've brought it upon yourself. Job, on the other hand, has continued to maintain his innocence. One of the things that is going to come very clear to us in this passage this morning is the humanness of our friend Job. Very often he's looked upon as this super saint that lived so many years ago and had a great love for God, which he did, and was faithful to God, which he was, as much as is humanly possible, I would say. But one of the things that's going to come through for you and I this morning as we read these two Uh, chapters is the humanness of Job, just how human this guy really is. Not so much different than I am. Not so much different than I find myself. He reacts to God in ways that look very much like the ways that I would react to God in the particular circumstances that Job is in. And let's just be reminded as we begin, as we studied the Uh, the torment of Job because of his physical ailments and and all the stuff that's going on emotionally and spiritually with him. He suffered a very great deal, far more than any of us are even capable of conceiving of what human suffering looks like. One of the most amazing things is this, is that Job is not just completely broken by all of this. So let's read these two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10. Job answering Bildad. Job answered and said, truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, who could not, who could, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun 
and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretch out the heavens and trample the waves of the sea, who made the bear and the Orion and the Pleiades in the chambers of the south, who does, not, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Just notice here he's just talking about the omnipotence of God, the all power of God. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away who can turn his back, or turn him back, who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger beneath him, uh, bow the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser, if I am summoned, uh, if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness as a contest of strength. Behold, he is mighty. It is a matter of justice. Who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. It is not he who then if it is not he, then who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skills of reeds, like an eagle swooping on the prey. I, if I say I will uh, forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face he, and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let us take his rod away from me. Let him take his rod away from me. And let not dread of him terrify me, that I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see man, uh, as man sees? Are your days as the days of man? Are your years as a man's years? That you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand. Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me the, like clay, and you will return me to the dust. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You're cl you clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. 
You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. If I, if I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look at my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witness against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Without I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go and shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, a land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick darkness. Whoa, have you ever in your lifetime spoken like that? <laughs> uh, This is a very important passage in our study of Job. There are a number of insights that are really given us here that help us to understand more where our friend Job is coming from. It is also one of the chapters in the book that gives real hope. And we'll get to that in a little while. One of the things that I want to point out this morning is this. Let Before I say that, let me say this. What it comes down to is there's two ways of looking at what's going on here. One is the, 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 the way that the friends of Job are looking at it, and the other is the way that Job sees things. Even though there really is a similarity in their assumption when it comes to a number of things, there is a distinctiveness that you find in, the, in Job's responses that you just don't find in those of his friends. What I would say to you is this, is both Job and his friends were very wrong about some very important things. Up to this point, they've all believed this, that basically what you endure in life is a product of what you do in life. That if your life is wonderful, it's because you're wonderful and you've done wonderful things. And, your life, uh, and if your life is really bad, it's because you've done bad things. Uh, and what is happening here is Job is concluding one thing in regard to the circumstances he finds himself in. And at the same time, his friends are finding uh, another cause of it. Basically, they believe that he is suffering because of his great evilness and wickedness. Period. 
That's the whole reason for it. And what he needs to do is repent of it. That's the whole sum of the story as far as they're concerned. And you're going to see them say this over and over again. We're not even going to get into all the details of all that as we go through here because it's the same story over and over from these three guys. You're in the circumstances you're in because you are an evil person that has committed great crimes and sins against God. Now we've seen how Job has been extolled as being this righteous man among men. No one compares to him. We also consider the fact that Job is not a perfect person. Job struggles with the same kind of things that you and I do. Because in what Job says here, it becomes very clear that, that God is actually treating him unjustly. In other words, Job sees some fault on God's part in all of this. Now, like I said before, we're going to still see the real humanness of Job come out in these passages. Job is saying a lot of the same things that you and I would think, and we might even say under the same circumstances. He is very, very human. He's not this super-duper human person. Let me say to you this morning that one of the greatest problems with the church today is that many hold a system of theology that is little different than that of these four men. Most people believe that the doctrine of grace is an exclusively a New Testament thing. I would say to you that is not true. That grace undergirds the whole Bible from the very beginning of it all the way to the very end of it. And even though the term grace, the word, there is a Hebrew word for grace is applied to Moses and to two or three of the other saints in the Old Testament directly. That grace, in fact, is something that undergirds the whole message of this book of Job. As it undergirds the whole message of the whole Bible. And I want to remind us of something, what it is. We talked a lot about this when we were studying Romans just recently. That is, this is grace is just simply absolutely unmerited favor granted by God. He never goes to anyone that deserves it. No one deserves God's grace. No one has earned God's grace. As a matter of fact, all people, including Job, have earned everything but grace. Grace is not something that can be earned. Neither is it ever deserved. But it's something that God freely gives. It cannot be demanded. 
It must be freely given. Nor does God owe it to absolutely every person. So if you know what I'm talking about, if you, you, if you understand what grace is and you know that God has given you this grace, then you should be very greatly humbled. Not proud, not puffed up. You don't know why. Why has God chosen to to give you this freely, completely unmerited favor? Grace is absolutely essential for the salvation of anyone, including Job. There are no super saints except for Jesus. I mean, one of the things that the book should bring to our attention is this, is Job is, is, is considered to be like the most righteous of the righteous, and if Job couldn't do it, why in the world would we ever think for a minute that we could, that any of us could? Like I said before, as we were reading through, you're probably thinking, you know, I'm seeing some stuff here that really seems to me to be very sinful on the part of Job. There's a sense of arrogance in the manner in which he's challenging God and he's charging God with wrongdoing toward him. Let's be truthful about it, and that is this, is if there really are only two possibilities in these circumstances, either Job really is a far worse sinner than everyone else because he's suffered so much more than other people, if that's true, it does seem like from a human perspective that God is unfairly treating Job. Let's be honest, if we saw someone going through this kind of thing like, like our brother Job is, we would probably come to the same conclusions. There's some things that Job does here that as far as the Bible's concerned are downright sinful. He shows himself to be a sinner in this passage. He challenges God. And he implies very clearly, maybe he doesn't come right out and say it, but he implies it very strongly that God is treating him wrongly, unfairly. That God is doing something wrong here. Now, if that's not sin, I don't know what you could possibly call sin.
He pictures God, you know, in, the, in these first verses of chapter 9. It, it's, he speaks a lot about the omnipotence of God, the power of God. And in the picture there is how can a person stand against this all-powerful being? And the conclusion, obviously, is no one can. I would say to you this morning that even Job's body may be close to death. His sinful nature is alive and kicking. And we see it come forth in some of the things that he says. Job is not questioning God's ability to do what he wishes. He's questioning God's motives for doing what he does. Have you ever done that? Did you do that yesterday? Have you done that this morning? Have you done it since we started worshiping this morning? Have you ever in your lifetime thought, Lord, what in the world are you doing here? How could this be your will? What is going on here? We all have our breaking point, and our dear friend Job has reached his. He stood the good and common ground far longer than any of us ever would have. But Job is, is just overwhelmed by his circumstances. And, 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 and by the simple facts that he knows about God, and that is that there's a sense in which God has brought these things upon him. He knows that. He understands that. He does not understand why. He does not understand that ultimately God is doing everything in his life that he is for, the God, for Job's good. That even though Job was a good and godly man, righteous among men, that there were things that Job had to learn that he would not learn, could not learn, would ever know apart from suffering on his own behalf. And that is true for all of us. That there are lessons that God wants us to learn that we will not learn. As a matter of fact, there are lessons that we have to learn that we will never ever learn apart from suffering. And if you suffer deeply, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Job, in this particular dialogue, it's like pictured as if, if, as if he is the defendant in God's courtroom. In the beginning, he sees God as just unapproachable. You know, how, how can a human come before this almighty, powerful God that does what he does? And let me just say this. If you don't know anything about the book of Job...
you need to be familiar with the last few verses of chapter 9. Verses 33 through 35. There is no arbiter between us or intermediary. Who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take away his, his rod from me. And let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him. For I am not so in myself. Do you understand what Job is saying? He's in God's courtroom. I cannot defend myself. I need someone who stands between me and God. Someone who can defend me. Who has the power and the ability to defend me in God's court. Someone who stands between me and Almighty God. Who does for me those things which I am totally incapable of doing. You understand that Job is crying out here for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, in the roots of the Old Testament. Because we know this, that there is that person, there is this arbitrator who's the only possible one who can arbitrate between God and man because he is both God and man. He's the God-man, Jesus Christ. If you're saved, you're saved for one reason, and that's because God has provided what Job is pleading for here. Someone to represent him in God's court in a manner he cannot represent himself. Jesus is the link. And again, this is one of the most ancient of Old Testament books, and we find the seed of Christ right here. Some people have you know that, that this whole concept of the Savior and etc. didn't appear until the New Testament times. That's just not true. It's right here in the very root, the very beginning of the Word of God. Our desperate need for this arbitrator, our desperate need for this intermediary, this person who's both God and man who can stand between us. Speak on our behalf. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you do, you can have confidence of your salvation. If you don't, and you're confident you're going to earn your salvation on your own, then you're going to fail. Sometimes we'd like to, 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 to be able maybe to go back in history to, to, to hear things and see things and etc., etc., etc. But this is a place where you and I have a decided advantage over many people, of the people of the Old Testament in particular. Because we, we're on the other side of the coming of that intermediary. We see Christ in a way that the people in the Old Testament couldn't.
The sad thing about it, my friends, is this, is there's a good number of people who believe the same thing that Job did in the beginning of this, and that is that they would be able to stand before God and prove their innocence. Let me just say this, that if Job couldn't do it, there's nobody on the face of this planet that would come close to doing it. The truth is all people need the God-man, the arbitrator, the one who speaks on their behalf in God's courtroom. And that arbitrator is even more special than that. He not only speaks on their behalf, he acts on their behalf. He does for them what they cannot do for themselves. So why the God-man? Because there's no other possible way for us to be right with God no other way he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through him and that includes Job So are we trusting? And how many in this room are still trying to do things their way? How many people in this room still believe that, in, that, that to some degree they're better than other people are? How many people here still want to argue with God? Oh, by the way, Lord, you're wrong about this, that, or the other. In particular, you're wrong about me. In chapter 10, we're not going to really get into it, but, you know, Job just, he just hates his life where he is. He, he has real bitterness toward God, which is expressed in all kinds of ways. He knows that he's innocent, but for some reason, God just simply doesn't care. He goes back to where he started, and that is wishing that he was, had never been born. You know, it had been so much better for me if I'd never even been thought of. In essence, what he's saying is, I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. Ever thought that? When's the last time you've given a lot of thought to the reality of Christ?
And how much of a difference is that making in the manner in which you live your life? You might be one of those people who wonders if anyone's ever really loved you in this life, cared about you, willing to do for you anything and everything necessary for you. God. God is it. He's life. He's life worth living. There's a sense in which any life apart from Christ is not worth living. Because it only leads to hurt and harm and judgment and damnation and death. But don't doubt for a minute that life in Christ is worth living. And not only living, but living to the full. That is the only, only place that we will find what life really is. In Christ Jesus, we have that promise of a good life, a great life, eternal life. We have lots to be thankful for. We live in a manner that few people in this world ever have. Comforts that most people have never thought about having. Resources that most people have never thought about having. Freedoms that other people have never had and never will in this life have. People will try to ascribe all of those to all kinds of things. There's just this special human spirit that you have in these people we call Americans. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke. God is our blessing. God has given us all that we have. God has given us all that we are. God has given us all that we know. He indeed is the Father of lights who showers down every blessing upon his children. We have so much to be thankful for, and my prayer is that everyone in this room will give thanksgiving to God over this holiday week, and maybe in a manner that they never have, to a degree and to the depth that they have never experienced in their life. Joyful thanksgiving to the God who has done all of it for us, who has given us such very good lives. Be thankful. Most and foremost of all for him, for his love, for his care.